Nice to have you all here. <clears throat> Actually, I'm going to begin with a blessing. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu V'Mitzvotah V'Tzibanu La'asot B'Divrei Torah which is the blessing that gives thanks for the opportunity to occupy ourselves with words of Torah, Torah in the, in the written large sense of all Jewish learning and Jewish study and Jewish text, which we're going to be spending some time hanging out with for the next hour. But um, so many things I wanted to begin with. I think I'll begin with this. Because Rick, uh, who is in Washington, D.C., reminded me of Washington, D.C., and reminded me of this, which is the very end of Amanda Gorman's amazing poem, The Hill We Climb, which uh, any of you who, of course, watched the inauguration saw and heard her incredible performance of that, that poem that she wrote. It was so beautiful. It is so beautiful. And as beautiful as the poem is, was her delivery of that poem such a remarkable and artistic and beautiful and like many things made me cry although that's not much of a feat in my life to make me cry because I cry at almost anything in any event the end of her poem which I love is this in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. And I love that poem for lots of reasons, but I love the end, being brave enough to be the light, because it it captures for me so much of what uh, our ancestors are the sages of Jewish life taught in so many ways. And what the Torah and what the Tanakh, what the Bible, Jewish Bible teaches in so many ways, which is the reason that um, for any of us who are in the KI sanctuary, by the way, I will be with the rabbi's lovely wife, Didi, this Friday night in the KI sanctuary at 7 o'clock, leaving services, in case you're around. So... <clears throat> So, Mom, the answer is yes, I'm doing services this Friday night. Um, in any event, um, you may remember that the passage from the Bible that I picked to put over the, the Yortzite wall, the memorial wall, is from Proverbs chapter 20, where it says, Near Adonai Nishmat Adam, that the, the light of God is the soul of the human being. Um, because I always, first of all, I love that idea. Secondly, it seemed quintessentially, even though it's from Proverbs, quintessentially an expression of Reconstructionist theology, that this is where you find divinity and holiness and the light of every human being, if you look. Um, And that this is where, if we're capable and able, we can see our own divinity in our own eyes. Um, Louise Hayes always has a uh, uh, one of the exercises that she does in self-worth was to have people stand in front of a mirror and look into their own eyes and say, I love you. Uh, if you've never done it, it's really a powerful thing to do, to just stand in front of a mirror and look at yourself and say, I love you. It's like, um, for so many people, it's so uncomfortable to do something all by yourself in a, in a, in a bathroom or somewhere where there's a mirror and, and say that because <clears throat> we have so many interesting emotional challenges that we but to me, this is sort of fundamental to Jewish theology and to what, how the sages attempted to find a sense of, of holiness in the everyday, divinity in the everyday, godliness in the everyday miracles of life. So um, having said that, I want to begin with uh, a comment from the Talmud that I, I'm not going to share with you, but I'm going to share some things with you in the chat. Um, this one, the Talmud recounts an occasion when the imperial Romans, there's a lot of conversations in Talmud about arguments and discussions between Roman emperors and rabbis. <clears throat> they probably never took place. But in the Talmud, they like to have these conversations between Roman emperors and rabbis, uh, mostly to show how clever the rabbis were, because rabbis wrote it, of course, but sometimes to sort of set the the stage or for what it's like to be a minority in a, in a majority world. 
because after 70, when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and, um, and uh, all that, even those who lived in Jerusalem were a minority in a, in a majority world because they were under Roman rule. And so there were lots of challenges in the Talmud for Jewish, of Jewish theology and um, different rabbis with different Roman rulers. So there's this little section where it says uh, the imperial Romans were upset with a local rabbi because he'd been giving sermons that were inciting the people against the government, which is usually a dangerous thing to do. But, you know, trying to regain a sense of personal collective pride. So the Romans handled this with uh, one of the diplomatic tools available to power, powerful governments in every age, which was they sent a troop of soldiers to go arrest the rabbi. The townspeople, according to this story in the Talmud, the townspeople hear that the soldiers are advancing in order to arrest the rabbi, and so they surround the rabbi's home uh, with the rabbi still inside in an attempt to protect the rabbi. I'm sure you would all do that for me. I have absolute total faith. You would all surround my condo building should the uh, authorities come to arrest me for something I said or whatever. In any event, the townspeople surround the rabbi's house and the soldiers arrive. When the soldiers arrive, they see all these people surrounding the rabbi's house and they say, we're here to arrest the rabbi. And the, the townspeople say to the rabbi, no, no, that's really foolish. You should treat the rabbi the same way we do. And, and the soldiers say, well, what's that? Just ignore him. <laughs> so they said, okay, and they turned around and left, and that's how they saved the rabbi, according to the Talmud. So, speaking of which, that's my Talmud humor. There's not a lot of Talmud humor, by the way. So I put something in the, ch in the chat in case you want to see it. I'm going to read it to you. It's from... Um, the Talmud from Brachot spans two little, uh, there we go, uh, Rebecca. So it said, one who drinks, I don't think, did I do this once the first time around? I can't remember. <clears throat> Part of my problem is I didn't take notes on what I did three months ago. So <clears throat> either way, you get it again if you didn't, and you did, and if you're not, I like the point anyway. There, there's a conversation in the Mishnah and the Talmud, the two uh, different sections of the Talmud, about which prayers to say at which times. You know, Judaism has this, the rabbis have this really elaborate uh, discussions about there's a prayer for everything, right? A long list of prayers for every every occasion, everything you drink, everything you eat as one kind of a prayer or another. And so there's a conversation in which it says, one who drinks water to quench his thirst cites the blessing that ends shahakolni ebedvaro, which means by whose word all things come into being. Baruch it's a generic prayer that the rabbis assign to generic things. If there's not a prayer for anything else, when you eat or drink, you can say shakol. Shakol, by whose word, all things come into being. But because they're rabbis, they can't just let one rabbi say, this is what you do. Another rabbi has to say, no, 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 that's the wrong answer. There's, there's another answer, <clears throat> kind of like Republicans and Democrats. So Rabbi Tarifan says, but I'm not getting political. Rabbi Tarfan says, no, no, no. Instead of shehakol ni'yeh by whose word all things come into being, you should say borei nefashot rabot, which means God who creates many things, many beings and their needs. That's in the Mishnah. Gemara is a commentary on that. <clears throat> so the commentary is, quotes Rabbi Tarfan, who says, you should end this blessing with who creates many beings and their needs, and Rava Bar Rav Hanan, who's another rabbi, said to Abaye, they're having a conversation in the Talmud. Some say that he was actually talking to Rav Yosef. So, okay, they had a discussion. What's the law? Who wins? Who wins this argument? Should you say Shakol blessing or should you say Borei Nevashot blessing? And the answer is, go and see what the people are doing. I love that because it is a fundamental, becomes with this passage, from Brachot, from the Tractate of Blessings, Brachot means blessings, becomes a fundamental law in the Talmud, which is one of the primary ways of resolving conflicts between authorities who say, this is the way you should do it, and the other th authority says, this is the way you should, you should do it, is the bottom line of this little passage from the Talmud, which is, well, go see what people are actually doing. Go see what people, how people are actually living. 
Why is this important? This is important because it's a statement about where should customs and legitimate customs and legitimate uh, rules for appropriate Jewish behavior come from? It should, and the answer that the rabbis themselves, who are, quote, the authorities, say is, it shouldn't always come from us. Now, you may remember the very beginning of a vote, of the tractate Avot, the sayings of the sages, the very beginning, and the first thing that happens in that, that little section, which is filled with all these wonderful aphorisms, and I may share some more of them tonight, um, is a chain of authority. It begins, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai, Moses got the Torah at Mount Sinai, and he handed it off to Joshua, who handed it off to, and it's this whole string of, just like a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, when we take the Torah out of the ark, you know, we hand it from one generation to the next as this symbolic passing of the torch, but literally passing of the Torah and passing of the, the Jewish way of law, of life, and passing of Jewish literature from one generation to the next. The, this section is the definitive section of the Talmud in which it passes from Moses to Joshua to the men of the great assembly and on down to the rabbis, to us, us meaning those who are writing in the, these words in the Torah or in the Talmud or in the Mishnah. And the reason that they have that chain of authority passing down and ultimately landing on them, because they actually they wrote it, of course, is so they could say, we're just following what Moses really intended. You know, we're just following what Moses meant. And if Moses were here today, 2,000 years later, or 1,000 years later for them, or 3,000 years later, Moses were here today, this is what Moses would be teaching. We're the authoritative, definitive, you know, authority, and we've taken the, the, the text and the spiritual responsibility and, and, uh, from Moses, and now we're teaching it to you. You know, there's a danger in that, obviously. We all know the danger of a very powerful, persuasive, articulate leader who commands attention in any society and determines for everybody, we should go this direction or that direction, or this is the truth or that's the truth. <clears throat> and in Jewish tradition, in the rabbinic tradition, one of the things that is so outstanding about rabbinic tradition and the Talmud, which is why I was having this series about how to, why the Talmud is so relevant to today, one of the things that's always so powerful about the Talmud is that it's 20 volumes large. And the reason that it's 20 volumes large is because it's all arguments and discussions and conversations and not simply, this is the right way to do it, this is the right way to do it, this is the right way to do it, here's the truth, here's the truth, here's the truth. We're telling you because we're the authority and so therefore go out and do it. But the rabbis, the sages of Jewish tradition, had a very different attitude. Their attitude was, and I did say this last time, when we had the Hanukkah time, and we were talking about Hillel and Shammai, and, you know, the argument and the discussion, you may remember, those of you who are on that Zoom class about Hanukkah lights, you know, the discussion, the famous discussion between the school of Hillel and Shammai, and should you put all of the candles in the first night and take one away every night, or put one candle in the first night and add them every night, and we all know that Hillel won, and what we do is we put one in, and then two in, and three in, and four in, and five in, and six in, and seven and eight in. <clears throat> and we do that. And then, of course, the punchline of that argument for Hillel was because the light, which is how we started this little class tonight, the light of holiness, you never want to diminish the light. You always want to add to holiness. You always want to add to the light. But the, but the sages say, and I did point this out last month, that the reason that Hillel always wins arguments between Hillel and Shammai is not just because Hillel had the right answer. It's more out of what we in Hebrew call derech eretz, which is the expression of respect for one another, an expression, an embracing of the dignity of each other, even those with whom we disagree. Because in the Talmud, the sages themselves clearly say the reason that they always go with Hillel's school of thought rather than Shammai's school of thought is because Hillel's school of thought always used to, in the arguments, articulate Shammai's version first 
and give it respect and then say, but we disagree because of this reason or that reason. It is the inclusion of the minority point of view, which is always so important in rabbinic tradition, that's been our enduring lesson down to today in Jewish thought. You know, why we don't generally have Jewish dictators, we have a lot of Jewish arguments and Jewish back and forth all the time and all the jokes about three Jews and six opinions and all that kind of stuff. So here's what I'm going to do. Wait a minute. I'm going to put something else in the chat. In case you want to read it, you can read it in the chat. Otherwise, I'll just read it anyway because I like it. This is one of those things that sections that, um, you know, as, as all of you know, and my mother's here on the chat with us. My father died recently. Um, and uh, within this last month. And so I've been doing a lot of reading and studying on my own about Jewish attitudes about death and dying and grief. Uh, and, um, and and this is something that I, I learned many years ago, but I was reminded of, which is um, in the Talmud in Shabbat, um, there, is a, there is a section where the rabbis talk about uh, the test, the questions that God will ask you when you die. That what happens when you die and you go up to uh, the, uh, the world to come and you stand before God and before the heavenly court. And what is God interested in? What kind of questions does God ask? And um, there are these, there are four questions, but it says not the four questions of Passover, but the four questions. Um, and it says, the first thing it says actually before the four questions is something I've always, always cherished. It says the rabbis of the sages of the Talmud say, in the future, each of us must give an accounting for all the pleasures that we saw in life, but we didn't choose to enjoy. What a sweet thing to say. The, the good, and they go on, not in this section, another section where they say this, the foods that we could eat that we don't eat, unless you're on the vegan diet that I'm on, or the beautiful things to share with someone that you choose not to share we are made for pleasure in life, to enjoy life to the fullest. The sages taught us over and over again, you know, that we are here to live life as fully as we can and that the richness of life is our inheritance here and now. And that when we die and go up before the heavenly court, God will go, you had this opportunity and you didn't take it. What's wrong with you? You should have taken that to encourage us to live as fully as we can in our life. But the four questions that God allegedly, according to the rabbis, asked when we go before the heavenly court is the first one is, were you honest and faithful in your business dealings? Really? Were you honest in your in your business dealings? Did you have integrity in life, in, in your interactions? Because often, obviously, so much of our interactions with uh, with have to do with the commerce of the day and whatever jobs we may have and whatever professions we may have, whether we're the tailor or whether we're the shoemaker or whether we're, we have our fields and we're, uh, that we're plowing and sowing and reaping and whether we're keeping to the traditions in, of the Torah that say you should leave a corner of your field for the poor and those who are most needy, did you treat those who are most vulnerable and, and make sure to take care of them as our texts tell us over and over again, starting with the Torah and on through all of rabbinic literature. So the number one question, interesting, that the rabbis say, God asked, isn't, did you pray a lot? Didn't you go to temple every weekend? You know, didn't you fast on Yom Kippur? It's, were you honest in your business dealings? Did you have integrity in how you treated other human beings? Uh, and the second question is, now that they put the business question aside, now we're back to Torah. Now we're back to how rabbis think. Did you study Torah? That is, did you set aside a regular time for study? Because, first of all, rabbis are writing this. So rabbis are teachers. And rabbis immerse their lives in, even though in Talmud times, those rabbis, many of them, if not all of them, had other professions. They weren't full-time rabbis. Like I was a full-time rabbi. That was my profession. They were sandal makers. They did other things, and they studied as well. And they knew it's so easy to not study. It's so easy to not spend time doing what you're all doing with me right now, which is 
studying Torah. That's what we're doing. It's so easy to get distracted. First of all, it's easy to get tired if you're working and to go to bed early. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy if you have a lot of kids to never have any time to do anything. It's easy to not, and they recognize, as they said in the Talmud, the only way you're going to study is if you make a date with yourself on a regular basis and literally put aside time to study. The, the rabbis in, in the Talmud say, don't say, when I have time, I'll study, because you're very likely never to have time then. We all know, even in the pandemic, when we're mostly at home, how easy it is to not find the time to do the things you were intending to do. And suddenly the day has slipped away or suddenly the night has slipped away. You know, people have wonderful intentions. I'm going to do what my mom is. I'm going to learn Spanish. Look at all this time I've got to be home. I'm going to learn a musical instrument. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. And the end of the week comes and you went, what happened to all that time that I knew I had? And that, you know, it's, it's hard to have discipline and self-discipline. It's easier to discipline others often than ourselves. So the rabbi said, when you die, you're going to be called to account for whether you set aside time to study. Not just because study itself is important, but because they meant studying Torah, studying the Jewish way of life, studying the same, the wisdom of the sages that is what enriches the quality of our lives. Well, according to them, because they were the ones who were writing it. Uh, And the third question was, did you pay attention to the mitzvah, the number one mitzvah in the Torah, which is pru urvu, which is to be fruitful and multiply. That is, did you pass on? And interestingly enough, although if taken literally, it means did you literally procreate? And they have a conversation in the Talmud about what is necessary to fulfill that mitzvah. You know, and some said you have to have two kids, biological kids of your own. Some say in the Talmud, you have to have a boy and a girl. Some say, I mean, because they argue. Some say you have to have one. And some say, if you're a teacher and you pass on your teaching to children, it counts as if those children are yours. And there's lots of conversations in the Talmud about you should honor your teacher like you honor your parents because your teachers are another version of your parents. Which, of course, for those of you who are teachers, knew we used to call it, what, in loco parentis. Isn't that how they used to refer to teachers legally? In loco parentis. You're the parent in location of the school. You're the, you know, the parent substitute. Our ancestors, our sages, said you can fulfill the mitzvah of be fruitful and multiply by teaching children, by having your own flock of children who aren't yours biologically which is good because I have a lot of those, a lot of those. Now I'm doing almost of their weddings that are contacting me all the time. By the way, weddings are coming back into uh, after last year when all my weddings got canceled. This week I had two people contact me. I'm getting married May 1st. Can you marry me? I'm getting married June 7th. Can you marry me? You know, and the May 1st wedding is uh, this lovely Persian couple, young Persian couple. They're getting married to the Ojai Valley Inn. I know you're fascinated with this. Getting married to the Ojai Valley Inn. And so I said to them, is it big enough? If any of you have been to Persian weddings, they said, well, this is going to be a small Persian wedding because the Ojai Valley Inn has a maximum limit of 400 guests. So we'll see if uh, they have their wedding on May 1st or not. But that's rule number three, the, the challenge, the question number three, when you die, that God's going to ask you, will you fruitful and, and, and multiply? And the last question here in the text uh, that I wrote, it says, did you actively look forward to or work for redemption or anticipate redemption? Well, in the Hebrew, it's, it's uh, do you have faith, really? Do you have faith in redemption? Do you have faith that the world is going in the right direction? Which is really an interesting uh, rabbinic thought in the Talmud. You know, their lives, our lives are not that different. We have a lot of stuff. We have a lot more stuff than they have. We have Zoom you know, and the rabbis uh, 1,500 years ago, the Talmud was finished around the year 500. 
and, and span those 500 years leading up to it. That's when all these conversations took place. So five, 1,500 and 2,000 years ago, you know, they didn't have toilets that flush and they didn't have all the things that we have and they didn't have all of the modern technology. But human beings are the same. And they had sickness and they had death and they had joy and they had celebration and they had birth and they had everything in between and, and just had it in a different way. But the reason that the Torah still speaks to us and the reason that the, these discussions in the Talmud can spell, still speak to us is because many things have changed, but human beings haven't changed that fundamentally. We still have the same needs, the same hopes and dreams. We still have the same challenges to figure out how to live with each other and how to create a society based on both justice and compassion at the same time. We have the same, these, this liturgy that we wrestle with every high holidays uh, where, we, where we have the image of putting God on the celestial throne and being the judge of all of us over the high holidays, this grand image, and that we have these two thrones that we imagine in the liturgy of the high holidays, and, we, and our prayers are that we ask God to get off of the prayer of absolute justice and go sit, I mean, on the throne of absolute justice and go th- sit on the throne of compassion so that we are judged compassionately because all of us recognize that we all screw up in life. None of us are perfect. None of us, if we actually had, were judged with absolute justice, we'd all fail the test, according to rabbinic sages. Which is why one of my favorite sermons that I ever gave, I like referencing myself, one of my favorite sermons that I ever gave on the high holidays was that most of the time good enough really is. Because to me, that was one of the most important lessons that I felt, and I tell it to kids all the time, no matter what their parents say, I tell it to kids all the time. When we say something's good enough, we're saying it's good enough. You know, that when you strive for perfection all the time, 99.9% of the time, you're going to fall short of perfection. And if you only judge yourself on a standard of perfection, how, how's that going to be for your sense of personal value and self-worth? If that's your, if that's your standard all the time. And the fact of the matter is, and I use myself as an example all the time, and I won't ask my mother to corroborate, but I wasn't that great of a student, but I was good enough. I didn't get straight A's all the time, but I was good enough, you know? And, you know, this is what a hyperactive kid looks like when he grows up, you know? It's like, good enough, you know? And I was able to, and I feel proud of myself, and I was able to accomplish lots of things and get, you know, two bachelor's degrees and two master's degrees and a PhD and all those things, you know? Just by sticking to it, sticking with it, and being good enough, not by being the best in the class. I didn't, wasn't the best in the class. And I don't really think that's always necessary. And I think that that's the lesson that our ancestors were trying to teach as well. And when they say here that the question, the fourth question, the ultimate question that God asks you at the end of your life is, did you approach life with faith? Or were you always depressed? And always seeing the world and the, the glasses half empty. And were you always choosing to pick the, the version that life is filled with curses rather than life is filled with blessings? Knowing that, you know, we all suffer and we all experience loss. There is no one in the world that gets out of life without experiencing loss and without experiencing pain, and without experiencing sorrow and without being sick at some point in your life. That's everybody. And when you step back and you see that that's everybody's experience, and you know me, if you've been to all my classes, which most of you here have, actually, you know that I'm very fond of quoting the end of Deuteronomy that says, I put before you good and evil, blessing and curse, life and death, therefore choose life. Because this is also one of those lessons that I teach over and over again, because to me it's so crucial to the rabbinic mind, which is, that the Torah taught us, that God tells us, that all of us have all of those. Not blessings or curses, not good or evil, not life or death, but blessings and curses, good and evil, and life and death. And it's up to choose which we put in the foreground and which we put in the background of our own lives every day. Every day we have to make that same choice. Every day we wake up in the morning and we choose, no matter what's going on in our lives, what we're going to pay attention to. 
And what we attend to is what turns out to be the quality of our lives. You know, the quality of our lives is a reflection of the quality of our choices, not the quality of the circumstances that we're in. And we all know that because whatever our circumstances in, no matter how dire, no matter how challenging, we can point to other people who have been in the same similar circumstances and have either the same or a different attitude about their lives. It's not the circumstances. It's what we bring to it. And to me, that's what this quote from the Talmud is all about. That's what God is urging us to think about, the attitude that we are urged to have throughout our lives. That's what these questions represent. Not that they knew that when we die, we're literally going to stand before some divine judge. Maybe we are. I don't know. And God's going to ask these questions. They posit, posit these questions for a reason because it, it's a reflection of their their philosophy of life. What I was going to quote, unless someone else can post it in there, is uh, some statements about women in the Talmud. Rabbi Lewert and I put together this list of 10 quotes from the Talmud that are about women in the Talmud. And because I was thinking about loss this week, uh, this month, I ended up thinking about Rabbi Lewert. <clears throat> so I pulled up this, uh, this list that we put together together. In the tractate Nida, it said, God has endowed women with a special sense of wisdom which man lacks. I just thought I'd share that, that's all, <clears throat> for the women in the group. <clears throat> yeah. And then the second one she picked was, in the Talmud, Abu Dazarah, the wife of Rabbi Amram the Hasid offered to sell Rabbi Chuna true blue thread for the tzitzit. You know, the tzitzit, the fringes of, the, of our talit, uh, traditionally had, a, a, had a, a special blue thread that was made only with a special dye that's not existent anymore. So in the Talmud, there's this conversation about how you could find this. So he inquired from the sages if he might have uh, confidence in a particular woman because she was selling this. And they quoted to him the words of another sage who said, the wife of a colleague is to be trusted as much as the colleague himself <clears throat> And we put that quote together because you should always trust my wife if she says something. And this is the proof text in the Talmud, that the wife of the rabbi should be trusted as much as the rabbi, which is why Didi and I are doing services together on Friday night. Now, some of you may or may not like the next quote that Rabbi Lewert picked with me. It's in the tractate Sota, and it says, every man receives the wife he deserves. <clears throat> Now, that's certainly true with my father of blessed memory because he got my mother to be his wife for the last 65 years, so, and he certainly deserved that. And I certainly deserve my wife, I think. At least sometimes she tells me I deserve her, and sometimes you're never, not so sure. But it's interesting that, um, you know, they also say that everybody gets the leaders they deserve. I know some of you are cringing. It's okay. So, just, just saying. So, every man receives the, the, the wife that he deserves. Um, and, of course, they also say in Tractate Baba Metzia, whatever blessings dwell in the house comes from the wife. And if you have blessings in your house, <clears throat> I'm watching the Rosens. Linda's turning to her husband and going, see? <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> see? <laughs> That's why I quoted it, because I could see the two of you sitting there. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, here's one. Uh, <clears throat> he who awaits his wife's death in order to inherit her possessions will be buried with her. Hmm. And the last one <clears throat> is from the Tractate Sota. Among the necessary qualifications of a good wife are a gentle temper, tact, modesty, and industry. I just wanted to share those because I was looking at Talmud things and came across Cheryl's name attached to it. And, you know, the rabbis say, who inherits the world to come? Uh, and the answer, Ha'omer Devar B'Shem Omro, the person who's, who quotes something in the name of the person who said it, that uh, they're, they're very anti-plagiarism. And they have a long list of, 
of uh, qualifications for who can inherit the world to come <clears throat> and who doesn't inherit the world to come. And in the, in Avot, in the, in the Talmud Avot, <clears throat> one of the most powerful statements about who will not inherit the world to come is one who embarrasses another in public, doesn't inherit the world to come. They had the idea of, and I started before with Hillel and Shammai, the idea of showing respect and dignity to your fellow human being was paramount in the rabbinic circles. So much so that they literally said, if you embarrass some, humiliate someone in public, that you know you don't go to the world to come. Uh, there's a Talmudic legend, in fact, that says a traveler came at twilight to a campsite. Looking off into the distance, he saw a strange object which seemed for him to be shaped like a monster and was terrifying through the gathering dusk. So gathering up all the resolve he could muster, according to the Talmud, he drew closer and closer so he could see what this monster looked like so he could prepare himself to fight. When he got close enough, he discovered that it was another human being which caused his a great deal of his fear, but not all of it, because you never know, to vanish. Because you never know if the other human being is going to be friend or foe. I just read a long, I haven't finished the story, but I read a long conversation about where the custom of shaking hands came from. And some of you have seen some of these conversations. The custom of shaking hands came from the fear that we have of every other human being who may be hiding a knife behind their back and maybe stabbing us or a sword behind their back. And if you put out your hand and the person puts out their hand to shake your hand, you can see what's in their hand. And so while standing a little bit at a distance, here's my hand. Let me see what's, if you're hiding, you know, a dagger or something. And if the person reaches out their hand to shake your hand, it was a sign of friendship and a sign that you could trust them, that they weren't going to stab you. So this person draws near, sees it's not a monster. Well, it's not a unhuman monster, it's a human being, venturing closer still to suddenly realize it's not only a human being, but it's his own brother. Obviously, the story in the Talmud's point is the same story, the same point that they make when they talk about in Brachot, in the book of blessings, which I quoted before, and they have the question of when can you say the Shema in the morning? I talked to the sages about this in the sages conversation. There's this long conversation about you're supposed to say the Shema in the morning and in the evening. And so the rabbis have this long discussion about, well, so when is the morning? What counts as morning? How soon, how light does it have to be for you to say, oh, it's morning time to say the Shema. And everyone says the Shema and fulfill that mitzvah, that obligation. <clears throat> and the answer, they give several answers, but the one that I always cherish is similar to this one. They say, it's light enough to say the Shema when it's light enough to see that the other human being is your friend. And you can recognize a friend. Then you know it's light enough. The day has really dawned and you can say the Shema. Similar to this story from the Talmud that I just read about that the challenge is to recognize your friend. It's the same lesson that I talked about at some point about Passover and the ninth plague, which I also talked about with the sages. Remember the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. The penultimate plague before the killing of the firstborn was the scariest plague. The scariest plague literally was darkness because we're afraid of the dark. We're not afraid of the light. Light is a theme of this class, by the way, in case you didn't notice, I started out with that the light of God is the soul of the human being. So too, the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. According to the Torah, the plague of darkness, darkness struck everybody except for the Jews, except for the Israelites. It was light where they were, it was dark with everybody else. And what the rabbis in their commentary say, which I've always loved, is that the darkness wasn't just that the light went out. The darkness was that they couldn't see the pain of their fellow Egyptian that they couldn't see each other's pain and recognize the suffering of each other. That's the ultimate darkness. The ultimate darkness in society is when we lose our sense of compassion, when we lose our sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. 
Is there a generic term for that? Brotherhood and sisterhood? No, <clears throat> brotherhood and sisterhood. When we lose our sense of commonality, when we lose our sense of community, when we see every other person as an enemy, not just someone who may have a disagreement about something, when we see the other human being as dangerous, as a threat. <clears throat> Look, it's one of the biggest challenges of this pandemic. This I've said over and over again. The biggest challenge of this pandemic is that we are all living in a state where every other human being is a potential life threat. That's no way to live. That's no way to build community. That's no way to fulfill the teachings of our ancestors, our sages in the Talmud, who keep coming up with different stories to remind us that we are the same. My favorite story in the entire Talmud, which I've said over and over again, and probably said at every one of these classes, is the story of those two guys in the rowboat, which I say over and over again. It's the pandemic story. Two guys in a rowboat in the middle of the ocean, and one guy suddenly picks up a hand drill and starts drilling in the, bo- in the bottom of the boat. And the second guy, you've all heard this story because I've said it a million times, the second guy starts freaking out and going, what are you doing? What are you doing? And the guy with the drill says, what's it to you? I'm only drilling under my seat. What's it to you? I'm only drilling under my seat. It's a, it's a duh, obvious story. You're in a boat. You're in a rowboat. There's no such thing as I'm only drilling under my seat. We're all in the same boat. And that's the ultimate story, the ultimate teaching that the rabbis of the Talmud kept over and over again coming up with different versions of trying to teach us that for a society to flourish and thrive, for a society to, to succeed as a society, any society, it only succeeds when we all see each other being in the same boat. You know, when I accompanied Didi yesterday to the, get her vaccine, it was a wonderful experience, frankly. I mean, it was freezing. But other than that, it was actually a wonderful experience. At the end of it, it was, it was a line of people we're going through. We got all these people up. All of these people were there helping. She ended up in San Fernando. You're in a tent with different little stations and different people. And there were three people around. One was giving the vaccine, other people helping. There were people outside with masks and things and helping. I mean, the, the vision of, and next door to that was free COVID testing that people were doing. And you're watching you know, it's like the Super Bowl is coming, right? And um, you may have all heard, if any of you are sports fans, I'm not particularly, but I did hear that one of the things that Super Bowl is doing was bringing 7,500, you know, healthcare workers and giving them seats in the Super Bowl this year. You know, on our way there, we got off the freeway, and there are the people selling flowers off the freeway. You know, and as we drove by, Didi said, you think we should stop and buy flowers? To give to the healthcare workers that were going wouldn't have worked. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have wanted them, and they wouldn't have taken them in that session. But you know, that's the impulse. That's all of our needs to be all of our impulse, in spite of the fact that we're living in a world in which every other human being is a potential life threat. It's we have the ability because we're human to not simply react to our instinct. What sets us apart, I think, from most animals in the world, frankly, is that we can think with our minds that we are given the opportunity and the wisdom, not just intelligence, but we can have the wisdom to make choices that actually run contrary to our instincts. Because that's what makes us human. That's what creates a real society, is that we are able to see community, which isn't just listening to that famous FM station, WIIFM, what's in it for me? You know, if all we do is listen to what's in it for me, we don't have a society that functions together. We have, you know, how much can I hoard? How much can I keep? Why should I care about immigrants? Why should I care about poor people? Why should I care about those who are, uh, lose their job? Why should I care about, it's not my problem. I'm not losing my job. Why should I care about those people who are growing homeless in my community? Why should I care about those people whose job, whose businesses are closing right and left? Why should I care? You know, if that's all I care about, what kind of society would that be? And I think the wisdom of our sages and the wisdom of the Talmudic wisdom is exactly that, is to say, no, 
all of these stories, whether you're in a rowboat or whether you're walking down in the dark and you see something you think is a monster, it turns out to be your brother, or whether you're trying to figure out when to say the Shema in the morning, it turns out to be your neighbor. <clears throat> all of these are to teach us the very same fundamental lesson of life, which is that there's more that unites us than there is that divides us if we can see each other that way. Ner Adonai Nishmat Adam, that the light of God is in the soul of every human being. First statement about human beings is that human beings are created in the divine image. That's the fundamental lesson of the Torah. <clears throat> and I know I've said that a million times, but it's, to me, the most important lesson in the Torah. You could have stopped the Torah after that. You could have one sentence in the Torah. Every human being is created in the divine image and have nothing else. And if every human being acted upon that sentence alone, that teaching alone, we would have a different world. If every time I saw every other human being, no matter who they are, no matter what race they were, no matter what religion they were, no matter what language they spoke, no matter what socioeconomic group they were in, as being a ref- their light, their inner light was the reflection of holiness, how different would the world be? It would be profoundly different. It would be the world that we would like to live in. You know, and that's really ultimately our challenge. Our challenge is to live our own lives such that if everyone else lived the way I'm living, it would be the kind of world we want to live in, right? That's when I was writing parenting books, trying to emulate my own parents, who were great parents. You know, what I was teaching was one sentence. Be the kind of adult you want your children to grow up to be. You know, if you can do that, that's pretty good. You can be the kind of adult you want your children to grow up to be. And it's the same with, I think, all of the fundamental lessons of what the rabbis were trying to teach throughout the Talmud, no matter what they ended up saying. You know, Hillel's famous, one of Hillel's famous phrases was, don't separate yourself from the community. Well, you know, don't separate yourself from the community. What does that mean? Don't elevate yourself above the community. Don't go live on an island. Know that the only way community can exist is if all of us are participants. All of us have to be participants and not simply observers of society. You know, Hillel also famously said, you know, don't judge your neighbor until you've stood in your neighbor's place. Every religious tradition has their own version of that exact same, you know, don't, don't judge someone until you've walked a mile in their moccasins or whatever it happens to be. Every religious tradition, literally, that I have ever read about or studied about has a version of that same statement because we are all so judgy. You know, it's human nature to judge. We judge each other by our looks. We judge each other by our height. We judge each other by our success. What does success mean? Are you richer than me? Do you have a bigger house than me? Do you have a newer car than I do? Do you have more kids, less kids, whatever you happen to? How are you judging? We're all judging. The worst thing we do is judge ourselves. If you want to have the best, most powerful, painful, but powerful look at the power of self-judgment, I would say, watch that Netflix uh, documentary, Social Dilemma, if you haven't seen it. Raise your hand if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen Social Dilemma on Netflix. You got to see it. Um, social, the Social Dilemma is, is about social networking, um, and it's a, it's a documentary and a docudrama. It, the interviewees in that are all the people who created Facebook and Instagram and all those things. Though The actual people from all those companies who created all those things are the people they're interviewing, and then they dramatize some of it. Uh, I'll give one example, as I see time slipping out, because for me it was the most powerful. There was an interview with the guy who created Like, you know, push a button, you go, I like something on Facebook or any of those things. He was the, literally the guy in Facebook who thought it up, created it, and made it happen with the best of intentions, thinking this is a cool idea. People can just go click and, you know, like something someone else says. You know, it's like thumbs up. Nice, nice idea, right? Who wouldn't like that? And that simple click like has become the most single harmful attribute of social media to the self-image and the sense of self-worth, mostly of teenage girls. We're counting how many likes they get for something they post versus how many likes 
another girlfriend of theirs is getting and thereby judging themselves. <clears throat> it's similar to in that same vein on that same uh, in that same documentary. There's a show, a little docudrama of this teenage girl who posts a picture of herself doing something, you know, a selfie. And she posts it on Instagram, I think. And people are commenting and people are liking and people are doing and somebody posts an emoji, a picture of an elephant. That's all they did. This girl goes nuts. What does she do? She immediately runs to the mirror and starts looking at herself and her face to see why did that person think I have ears like an elephant? And you see her go down this wormhole, this rabbit hole, this dark hole of self-doubt because of this simple click on social media. Um, In any event, it's one of our greatest challenges today is how do we remind ourselves of the power and the pain of judgment of others so that we can transcend some of those, we can embrace each other, and we can see each other not as the potential life threat that everybody is, but as our neighbors, as our brothers, as our sisters, as the commonality that is necessary for a community to be successful and to thrive. That's why Hillel in the Talmud says, don't separate yourself from the community because without each of us, the community falls, requires each of us. So uh, I've run out of things to say. Well, I've not really run out of things to say. I just ran out of time. I can keep talking for hours. That's what rabbis do. You know, it's, uh, you, you know, I've told you many times the third grader who was asked, what's the definition of a rabbi? And said, the rabbi is someone who talks to God through a microphone. So <clears throat> today they'd say, rabbi is someone who talks to God on Zoom. So, <clears throat> and I've been talking to God for the last hour because Ner Adonai the light of the divine of God is the soul of you of every human being here. 